This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nick Posick, Assistant Director for the Parker School of Foreign and Comparative Law at Columbia University and a host on this channel. In June of 2019, a proposed amendment to Hong Kong's Fugitive Offenders Ordinance sparked widespread protest across the region. Protesters saw in this bill a threat to the judicial independence that Hong Kong has enjoyed since its return to China in 1997. The release of a new book, Rebel City, Hong Kong's Year of Water and Fire, coincided with the one-year anniversary of the beginning of this wave of anti-government protests. Published by the South China Morning Post, Hong Kong's newspaper of record, in conjunction with World Scientific Publishing Company, Rebel City weaves together perspectives and observations called by the Post's intrepid reporters to penetrate the turmoil of this political crisis and shed light on a complex and divided Hong Kong. My guest today is Zoraida Ibrahim, one of the editors of Rebel City, who is joining us to discuss this book and this moment in Hong Kong. Zoraida Ibrahim, welcome to New Books in Law. I'm thrilled that you can join us. Thank you, Nate. Thanks for having me. Perhaps to start, you could tell us about yourself and your work at The Post. Right. So I'm with the South China Morning Post. I'm the deputy executive editor of the publication. I oversee our Hong Kong news operations. I take care of our Asia and international news coverage. Uh, I've been there for nearly five years. I was originally from Singapore. And how did the concept for your recent publication, Rebel City, Hong Kong's Year of Water and Fire, emerge? Right. So uh, about a year ago, more than just slightly more than a year ago, Hong Kong was rocked by this huge protest movement that continued um, unabated from days to weeks to months. And we at the Post were finding ourselves having to cover this this event, um, which was taking place at first every weekend, and then it became almost a daily affair. Um, We were consumed by it. It was uh, of such an unprecedented scale that I don't think any aspect of Hong Kong life was left untouched by it. So uh, we had reams and reams of coverage. We ran numerous live blogs um, occasionally, or very often, actually. The live blogs would run for hours on end, sometimes up to 12, 13 hours a day because there was so much going on, especially on weekends when the protests first started. And so when we had a bit of a respite at the end of last year, during the holiday season, we had a chance to kind of step back and just try to process what it was that we went through. And we all collectively felt that this was such a traumatic um, episode for us personally and for the city generally, and that it would make sense for us to kind of put some coherence to our reporting on the past six months and try to organize our thoughts 
try to reflect on what it was that we went through and hopefully um, crystallize the key events into something that's uh, digestible. So that was what we thought of. And in less than three months, we put together this book, which came out in June, which was exactly a year when the first protest broke out. And shortly after publication, China passed the new national security law. Can you talk about what this new law has meant for journalism like yours? Right. So um, the book did not touch on the national security law. I think the book, if you want to look at the arc of uh, this story that we've been covering, is probably the backstory, the lead up to the national security law. The national security law uh, was enacted on June 30th this year. The discussion on the national security law or formal open discussion on it only came about a month before that in mid-May. So that was when the book was in production. So uh, you could say um, on the one hand, you know, we were a bit out of date because we did not touch on the national security law. But on the other, I think it, it provides a very useful backdrop to why we are here today and why uh, Beijing, why the central government felt the need to impose a national security law on the city. Um, and in the book, we intimated about how, you know, uh, Beijing would need to act. Uh, it cannot just sit by and look at what's been happening to Hong Kong for the past one year and not take some sort of action. Um, many people in the city were expecting uh, Beijing to um, choose one of several options, but I think very few people honestly um, saw the national security law in the form that it has uh, emerged to be what Beijing had in mind even as late as May. I think everybody was talking about um, the implementation of Article 23 in the Basic Law, which will, would have been a locally introduced form of legislation on national security passed by the local legislature. That is still in the basic law, which is the city's mini constitution. But for now, Beijing has taken that decision out of the local government's hands with this national security law. So um, in the book, I actually ended with um, a, a question. And I just... If, if you don't mind, I'd like to read it. Because, Go for it. Yeah, I think it points to what uh, we were all leading up to. I mean, the, what this was all leading up to. Uh, because I we sometime in April, we, sometime in uh, March, I think, I sat down with a few of these protesters who had gone through so much, who had been out on the streets, taking on the police, uh, creating <clears throat> violence at some points, uh, some were peaceful, some were not. And so we spoke to one of these uh, young people and we said goodbye after like a three-hour meeting. She's just all of 14, but if you... if you, uh, when, when we met her, when I met her, um, she was wearing a mask because, you know, this was at the time of the coronavirus pandemic and all of us were masked. And when you hear her speaking, you, you, wouldn't, think, you wouldn't think that she, she's a young a teenager, but when she took off the mask, I realized, oh my goodness, she's really very, very young. She looks really young. Um, she's all of 14, and she has 
all these ideas about what is important for her city and why she wants democracy and why one man, one vote is so important and why she must resist uh, the might of Beijing. And she believes all of those things uh, with every fiber of her being, I think. So when we ended, I think I, I was very... Um, I was very touched by, by, by this young person's idealism or naivete, depending on your point of view. So when we met and then we parted company, I told her, hey, come 2047, if you are still around, if I'm still around, let's make a pact. Let's try to meet up, right? Let's try to meet up somewhere in, the, in this part of the city and, and, and compare notes. Because 2047 is when 50-year uh, deal, as it were, that Beijing made uh, in the handover of Hong Kong from the colonial, the British colonial government was for Hong Kong to retain its way of life for the next 50 years, from 1997 to 2047. So 2047 was a good uh, meeting point, I felt. So I said, you know, um, we it would be a good time at that point in time to, to meet up, to see whether um, the events of 2019 Maybe at that juncture, I said we will have a clearer picture of what the events of 2019 meant, whether they were part of a movement that secured Hong Kong's autonomy for future generations or squandered it and sent the city into decline. The city, the date seems like a distant prospect. Full stop, who's the nickname for this protester, will be 42 then. So I don't think we have a clear answer yet, but the national security law actually um, gives us a glimpse as to what could happen in the coming years. On the topic of looking back, there's a really powerful section in the book, the reflection section, where you take the newsmakers and you ask them to look back on their articles, essays, and observations. What inspired you to include this in the book along with the coverage? Right. Um, so a large part of the book, or like 90% of the book, is really a, an anthology of the reporting that we did over the course of last summer and the early part of this year. And we thought that it would be useful to also offer the commentary commentaries that SEMP ran on its website and its, in its print publication. Um we have a lot of contributors and not all of them are on staff. So there was a practical decision as well as to when we made the choice as to who to include. We could only include people who are on our staff for various copyright reasons and so on and so forth. I won't bore you with that. But the people who whom eventually we decided to feature in the book with their reflections were actually uh, mostly senior members of the SEMP who were columnists in their own right. And they have been in the city far longer than I've been. Um, some were born here, some grew up here. Um, most of them, you know, met the loves of their lives, married, lived here and had children here. So this this is a very personal story for, for many of us. And so they gave their different perspectives. And um, it, it was just another counterpoint, another counter view to the multiple views that we try to reflect in the, all the other chapters. This book interweaves a variety of perspectives. In the introduction, you describe this as a sort of Rashomon effect, um, including marginalized perspectives such as the essays, hashtag me too, women on the front lines, or 
migrant workers in the danger zone. Uh, you show the experience of the police in Danny Mock's essay, The Doxing and the Dueling, uh, which portrays the harassment and the terror that the police endure. But then it's contrasted with the experience of the protesters in Emily Tsang and Victor Ting's essay on the externalities of the massive amount of tear gas that had been deployed in this city. Why was it important to show all these perspectives and bring them together? Right. Um, that's a very good question, Nick. So, you know, the protests, as we wrote in the book, right, were among the world's most visible political events in history. Uh, the reason this was so was because I think the action, the, when the protesters were taking on the police or when the police were going after the protesters, the action could be viewed on multiple live streams. It was the most, to me at least, the most live stream political event in recent times that I can think of. And so you could ha- you, you had on the front lines dozens of local and international reporters recording all these clashes between the protesters and the police. And everybody had their, what they considered to be incontrovertible evidence of what exactly happened. What, who was the villain and who was the victim. And the debate would go on and on. And to me, I mean, to us, this was precisely the Rashomon effect in the age of Facebook Live and Twitter, you know, as in the fabled uh, Akira Kurosawa movie, you know, eyewitness came forward with conflicting conclusions. And this was exactly what happened in Hong Kong. To many Hong Kongers, police were to blame for the escalation of violence. But then to others and to the police themselves, they were the very line protecting the city from anarchy. So, you know, we had so many people with different pieces of evidence of what transpired. But I think at the post, as reporters, we had, um, we, we, we didn't have the luxury of, you know, being a participant, an expert witness or a judge. We just had to be very uh, circumspect in our approach because we have feet on the ground, greater access to all sides. We had to try to be as fair and balanced as possible, try to reach to the truth of each side's version of things. So in the end, we weren't always able to come to very firm conclusions, but I think we were able to portray and give each side a chance to tell their story. At least that's what I would like to believe uh, we we did. And as to your point about how you know we captured uh, the the lives of uh, people who were affected by the protests, I think this was one dimension of. Um, the, the, the unrest that happened in the last one year that we sometimes tend to forget. But in reality, um, the protests affected everybody. They affected not just the protesters or the police, but affected government. Or if you don't care for government, they affected just ordinary people, people just going about their lives, minding their own business, people who are vulnerable, the elderly, the poor, the disabled. The poor and the elderly, I think when transport uh, got affected by the protests, when the protesters were clashing with the police outside uh, metro stations, then there were disruptions to service. And the poor, you know, they need um, access to affordable transport. So some of them couldn't go to their jobs or had to stay behind at their workplaces and and just put up with uh, the inconveniences. And then there were others, the cleaners, 
who you know had to pick up the the mess the day after um, all the wreckage and the debris of you know um, the uh, the clashes. And so we 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 portrayed we spoke to those people. We did this in our regular reporting, but for the book we felt that it was important to also feature them because they had a voice. And I'm sorry if I'm going on too long about this. I still remember. Sometime in uh, mid early August, I think, uh, when the protesters uh, were were uh, going doing their um, clashes with the police, uh, the train operators would stop um, some of the services because there were uh, either road blockade blockade blockades or you know uh, they were blocking MTR uh, metro station entrances. And so we came across elderly people just trying to find their way home. And because they had to be offloaded, they couldn't figure out their way home. And that was very, very um, traumatizing for them. And I still remember there was this 85-year-old man and we featured him in our blog. And I, I keep wondering what's happened to him because he's all of, he was all of 85 last year. He lived alone. He had taken a bus. Um, to go to this street in, in a part of the city where you buy sneakers. He was going to go for an operation the next day and he wanted to buy sneakers so that after his operation, he would be able to have a comfortable pair of shoes to walk around. So he got his pair of sneakers, got onto the bus and then the uh, services got disrupted and then he had to be redirected. So And he was looking really lost and he was on the brink of tears with his sneakers in his in his plastic bag, right? So then our reporter came up and, and showed him the, the route home. So, you know, and we never got his, we have his picture, he's in our archives, but we never got his phone number. So we can only hope that he survived the operation that he's doing okay now. But it just reminds you that, you know, it, may have, it might have seemed a small inconvenience, but... Uh, people's lives were affected in small ways and big ways. And for yourself, in the process of bringing together all these stories, did your perspective evolve? Did the way that you think of this entire situation change? Did you glean any new insights? Right. So um, I think, as I said earlier, I've not lived in the city long enough. I've only been here five years. I consider myself a guest. Uh, This is my adopted uh, city. Um, but I think in the months that um, went by when the protests were going on, I was I was fortunate and privileged enough to have many, many conversations with different people with different uh, perspectives. And one thing that I, well, two things that I came away uh, from with from those conversations were first, I think Hong Kong people have this very strong sense of self and their identity and they are very, very resilient. They, they really believe that whatever it is that the city has, it has to be protected. Um, it might not seem all that precious if you're an outsider, uh, but to them, this is their way of life. They are able to communicate and do business in English, but they have their dialect, which is Cantonese, and they're very proud of Cantonese. They have their way of... Um, their, their cuisine, their, their lingo. So it's it's just something unique and different from the rest of mainland China, and they want to protect that. So it is a bit of an identity issue as well. So, and that resilience, I think, is something that I, I remain in awe of. 
um, that's number one. Number two, I think um, there's still a lot of idealism in young people. Uh, you, some people might say it's misplaced idealism, but I think um, for them to believe that they can make a change despite the odds, or even if they might not be in, in, this, in the right side of history, I think that also says something about, uh, uh, about them. So I, these are two things that uh, have stayed with me. Um, I don't know how things will change. Uh, but, you know, Hong Kong, Hong Kong is, you know, someone once told me like, you know, Hong, Hong Kong is like a ball. The more you bounce it, the, the harder it'll come back. So <laughs> I don't know. That's a beautiful image. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You open the book with a thumbnail sketch of Carrie Lamb. Why start with her? Why is that the beginning of this particular moment in Hong Kong's history? Right. So Carrie Lam, um, for the benefit of your your listeners, um, she's the city's chief executive. She's like the prime minister of the city, as it were. Um, so the reason why we started with her is because I believe that this whole unleashing of this movement began with her. I I think that it was her idea to introduce an extradition, this bill called the extradition bill, which would have allowed for the return of uh, fugitives with various countries that Hong Kong did not previously have an extradition treaty with, including mainland China. Um, she, I think, uh, genuinely thought that she could pull it through, pull it off, that this piece of legislation would uh earned her brownie points with Beijing because this was something that was already difficult to implement. But I don't think at that point in time, Beijing was in any hurry or pushing her or anyone to have this extradition bill. She thought that she could pull this off because there was a case of a young man who had murdered his girlfriend, his pregnant girlfriend in Taiwan. And he, after... uh, murdering her, he stuffed her in a pink suitcase and left her in the forest and he returned back from Taiwan to Hong Kong and then he was caught. He went to prison for stealing her credit card and stealing some of her money, but then he she he could not be returned back to Taiwan for him to stand trial for the murder. So she thought that hey, if I come up with this extradition bill and do it really fast, when he gets out of prison for his other conviction, I can, we can send him back to Taiwan. Of course, nothing of that sort happened. Um, the rush, the, the, the haste in which she tried to introduce the bill, I think already made a lot of people very, very uncomfortable. The government uh, set aside 20 days for public consultation, which is a very unusually short period of, for consultation. So, and, and she was doing it at a time where U.S.-China ties were also beginning to uh, become 
fraught with tension. Those were early days. So the geopolitical environment was becoming uh, quite, uh, there was political inclement weather, as it were, on the horizon. So this chief executive did not see all of these things. She did not um, factor all, all these things in her calculations. And she just tried to barrel her way through with this piece of legislation. And the opposition saw this and saw this as an opportunity to uh, inform the public, to warn the public, and uh, out of their own self-interest too, to capitalize on, on her mistake and to uh, gain the, uh, in their own relevance. So that was um, where it all started. So, you know, I, I, I some, we sometimes play this parlor game about whether or not any other chief executive would have introduced such a piece of legislation. And in all of those conversations that I've had with very seasoned um, veteran Hong Kong watchers and fellow Hong Kongers, all of them said that, no, I don't think, you know, the previous chief executive or this or that chief executive would have introduced it. So um, that's why this story had to begin with her. One of the features of the book that readers will find tremendously valuable is the back matter. There are two sections. One is a list of common terms for the protests, and the other is a list of video links to coverage of the protest. Um, with the video coverage in particular, it's very carefully selected, an almost curated list that gives a sense of the texture of what the protests felt like or what I imagine the protests to have felt like. Why was it important to include these? Right. So at, at the South China Morning Post, because we consider ourselves to be a digital media operation, we're just no longer people covering the news for print, but also for online, for all our platforms. And we have, you know, a video team, a very talented video team. And they were out on the ground. They were in the trenches with our fellow reporters and they did some amazing work. We had some uh, excellent footage. And we thought that this was a story that also needed to be told uh, in three dimensions. And so uh, when our publisher came up with a suggestion for a QR code, we said, sure, why not? And so we had such a tough time um, uh, winnowing down that list to just 15 videos. Um, but I think um, they've done an excellent job. And I think, um, just, you know, having read the book, if you then look at the videos, I think it will be a more enriching experience. And I think you will get a better sense of uh, what it was that the city went through. As to for the glossary of terms, I think this was a bit of a last minute decision. And we only decided to do this because we were trying to like figure out the spelling for some of these colloquialisms. And if you've visited Hong Kong or if you've lived here long enough, you will know that Cantonese uh, is a very colourful language. Um, it's it's dialect, but it has a lot of uh, self-invented uh, words, an amalgam of English and uh, Chinese or Mandarin or just funny, funny phrases. And so during the, the months of protest, um, the, the protesters came up with their own slogans and we thought that it was important to explain the meaning of these slogans just so that you get 
uh, a fuller flavor of uh, what it was that they were talking about. And it's a useful, handy guide. And um, I think it will still remain relevant for future protests. And that speaks to the audience for this particular book. Uh, Do you see the audience for this book being the same as for The Post? Who did you really write this book for? Okay, I think that's a really good question. On the one on the one hand, I think we wrote the book for ourselves. I think we needed to write this book to be able to um, crystallize in our own mind what it was that the city went through and what it was that we were trying to capture. So that was um, for ourselves, but it was not a vanity project, I must hasten to add. I think it was just to help us Uh, organize our own reporting, our own thoughts on the protest. And then secondly, and far more importantly, I think it's to reach out to um, our audience, our current audience, and hopefully to find new readers who can see what it is that when a team comes together, um, is able to harness its best talents, uh, organize itself well, and stay true to some very uh, important journalistic ideals of being uh, truthful, staying fact-based, being balanced and neutral. Um, This is who the book is for. If if you want to uh, find a book that has a particular perspective and a very clear bottom line as to what happened, then don't read this book. But if you are open-minded about what it was that transpired, if you want to have a deeper understanding, um, I think then this is the book to read. And I think so far we have been um, gratified to um, hear from people who have picked up the book, who might have been a bit skeptical because, you know, it's never... um, it's always good to be racy in your in your point of view, right? To take a very um, <clears throat> skewed angle on something. But then we were very balanced and neutral. And we've had people coming up to us and said that they really appreciated uh, this approach because this allows them to make up their own minds as to what exactly happened and what is the way forward. And so far, surprisingly, the book has uh, done pretty well in Hong Kong um, amongst our English-speaking readers, obviously. But also in the region, we've had people in Singapore who follow Hong Kong closely, uh, giving us very positive feedback. And in the U.S., um, quite a number of Americans have uh, written into us to say that um, they appreciated the 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 approach that we took with the book. That's great. It sounds like you've received a tremendous amount of feedback thus far. Can you tell me what the reception for the book has been like overall? Of course, you know, as as, um, newspaper people and as uh, now a a book author, of course you want the book to reach more people. but unfortunately, when it came out, it was at the height of the pandemic and a lot of bookstop, bookshops were closed and uh, a lot of people were not in the mood to read very um, serious stuff. And because at that point in time, the protests had kind of begun to die down, right, because of the pandemic. So 
um, the timing, the stars weren't perfectly aligned. Um, so I think we, it would have been, to me at least, it would have been a, a lot easier, I think, if the pandemic wasn't here, we could meet more people, interact with more people beyond the webinars, beyond the Zoom meetings that we had. So we're still trying to um, make sure that the book goes out to uh, more people. And I think just last week, the publisher told us that um, they're going for a second print run. So we're quite encouraged by that. Um, but hopefully, um, more people will get a chance to, to read the book. Of those that have, it sounds like you're hearing a lot from them. Um, have any of their perspectives surprised you? Actually, has anything about this project really surprised you? Um, I think... I, I, the one thing that um, I feel quite gratified by is that there are enough people out there who do not feel the need for, for a paper to take a hardline position on who to cite during the clashes. Um, you know, the, the common uh, division in Hong Kong is to describe yourself as either being yellow or blue yellow for being supportive of the protesters. So we have in Hong Kong, you know, uh, this um, shops and cafes which are described as the yellow circle economy and they are overtly um, supportive of the protesters. And then you have the blue camp, uh, obviously in support of the police. So um, at the polls, we have deliberately taken... Uh, the more difficult road, which is not to take sides, to give each side its fair say, and then to decide for ourselves in our editorials to uh, determine what our editorial position is in our uh, commentaries. In our commentaries, we allow a diversity of views, of course, but in our editorials, we take certain positions depending on uh, what what event transpired. But in our reporting, we are very, very clear that we are not going to take sides. And I think this is an important virtue or this is an important value because, uh, especially in, at a time of great polarization, I think you you just add to, to the polarization if you just stick to one particular point of view and because that means you're not listening to the other side. Uh, and I don't think it's the job of uh, uh, journalists in their reporting to take sides. And you mentioned in the book the risk that your journalists undertake in this reporting. For listeners, can you talk about this risk and what it means for the work that you do? Right. Um, so, so, so the protests when they first began, right? They 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 began. It was a, a bit of a slow boil. They began in late April very small numbers, and then on June 9th, an estimated 1 million people took to the streets to oppose this extradition bill, to oppose this piece of legislation that the chief executive, Ms. Carrie Lam, had introduced. At that point in time, it was still a fairly peaceful uh, protest, and people were all very, very supportive of um what it was that uh, they, 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 they were after. Uh, but then it got a bit chaotic 
Uh, it got chaotic from on June 12 when uh, the protesters decided to surround the legislature to prevent the lawmakers from going into the legislature to discuss and debate the bill. Um, then violence broke out. That was uh, the first time tear gas was used by the police to disperse the protesters. Uh, the police, of course, uh, defended uh, their decision, uh, saying that it was actually the safest way to disperse uh, the crowds. But from then on, I think uh, it became um, it became a tense uh, movement. It became it became difficult for us to cover the protest. So when we first started out, it was uh, quite funny because uh, we would just arm our reporters with. Um, swimming goggles <laughs> or a, a regular cap, right? Just wear, put on a sports cap and put on your swimming goggles and just go out to the streets. And then if you get pepper sprayed or tear gas, wipe it, find a wet towel. So we came up with this list of instructions. But then both sides kind of up the ante and the tools or the so-called weapons that they use are weapons with small W. They're not like... Um, um, they're not, they don't cause fatalities, right? Um, whether it was bottles, projectiles, batons, canes, rattan canes, or metal rods, um, uh, or petrol bombs later on when it got really dangerous. We had to make sure that our reporters were properly equipped um, so we began ordering real gas masks so that you know they could with, withstand the impact of the of the tear gas and continue reporting. And then we got uh, anti ballistic uh, goggles so that you know if rubber bullets were fired, they they would not be in any danger. But despite all of that protection and despite all of the training that uh, reporters went through, of course. It was risky. Of course, it was dangerous. And a few of us, a few of them got tear gassed and some had to uh, be attended to medically. Uh, one or two had to go to hospital. And then some, uh, one or two got into fights, not because of their own choosing, but they got beaten up, right? Somebody would, uh, I think one of our photographers had someone lunch at him. And then another of our video uh, photographer, videographers, I think, had um, one of the rubber bullets, you know, land on his foot. So that was really painful. So, so every time uh, when we sent our reporters out um, to the streets, we would always brief them on um, the risks that they shouldn't take, uh, how they should always look out for an exit route. Um, every time at any venue, the first thing they had to do was to make sure that they do not get themselves kettled in, in any sort of physical clash and that they know how to exit quickly. Um, so these were all the things we trained them to do. But um, we always, I mean, felt... Um, I, I mean, there was always trepidation each time, each um, weekend when we sent our reporters out and we would always, you know, keep tabs on them, keep checking in on them to make sure that they were all right. For the most part, I think uh, they were. But another 
aspect of what they went through that is less often discussed. I think when you see physical clashes um, with the same degree of frequency and intensity that they did, I think that had an effect on on them and on all of us. Um, I I think, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but I think we did all suffer some form of PTSD. And, and this has actually been well documented um, amongst uh, journalists, right, in real war zones or even photo editors in the, in the newsroom just spending hours and hours looking at footage or stills of people fighting, people being involved in clash where there's violence. It does have an effect on you. So I think um, my, my team, our, my colleagues, we really went through a lot. How does having that experience and that perspective shape the way you think about putting these materials in front of others? Right. I, I would like to think that, you know, all of us emerge um, at the other end of the tunnel as better journalists. I think all of us uh, learned a lot. Uh, we learned a lot about our city. We learned a lot about the stakeholders who are involved in the in the protest movement and the social unrest. But we also learned a lot about ourselves, um, how we view um, our city, how do we view conflict, and how do we think about the way forward. Um, I don't think we have all the answers yet. I think Hong Kong is still going through a lot. Um, but I think the last one year um, has probably changed most of us. And I think, I hope for the better. Zoraida, we've taken up a lot of your time. But before we go, can you tell us what you're working on next? Is volume two in the works? <laughs> well, uh, no, we're not. Uh, uh, you know, uh, like I said, I think uh, the whole exercise has, has, I think, made us better journalists. Uh, in that sense, we have um, uh, changed for the better. I'm not sure whether the city has changed for the better because of the protests. But um, right now, all of us are consumed with uh, reporting on the national security law. We want to find out uh, what's going to happen next, how the law will be uh, rolled out, how it will be implemented and tested uh, by the courts, uh, by the very people whom it is targeting or the very people it is not targeting. The government has said that it is going to target a very small minority of people, but I think we are all waiting and watching to see how it will all unfold. So um, we started doing um, regular temperature checks on how Hong Kong has changed after the national security law has uh, came about. So we've been through one month. Uh, this Monday, it would be uh, the end of the second month. Uh, again, it is still early, um, but there are so many uh, dimensions to that story that we have yet to tell. But we hope to tell it well, and we hope that our readers stay with us. Zoraida, thank you again for joining us on New Books in Law. Not at all. It's been my pleasure. It was wonderful speaking with you. I hope that you and your team stay safe. Yes, you too, Nick. Thanks a lot. <laughs>